And turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 19. We just last week finished our series through the Gospel of Mark. And one thing that we did a few times through that series here and there was look at a, a parable that's uh, not found in the Gospel of Mark. There are very few parables that Mark includes. Uh, Matthew and Luke have uh, dozens that um, Mark does not include. And so I thought we'd do that one more time. And I thought one of the most appropriate parables we might look at, uh, perhaps having taken the story of Jesus in the Gospels all the way up through the resurrection and his ascension, uh, is this one that tell, Jesus teaching his disciples about uh, his being absent then uh, until he comes again one day and, and how they're to think about that. Uh, so let's uh, read together here as I read God's holy infallible word, Luke 19, uh, 11 to 27. While they're listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be an authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, Master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you. Because you are an exacting man, and you take up what you did not lay down, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you not know that I am an exacting man, taking up, uh, up what I did not lay down, and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. They said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. We'll end our reading there. This is one of the few parables that begins with the gospel writer telling us right up front the very purpose for Jesus telling the parable Uh, In verse 11, it says it was because some supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Uh, That is, that the the general Jewish expectation was that the full, final kingdom of God was going to come all at once, um, be an earthly kingdom, and and be glorious from that day on. Uh, Rather, Jesus teaches over and over again here in this parable that there would be a delay, there would be an interim. Uh, The coming of the kingdom really comes in two grand stages, the coming of Christ the first time, but then his, his second coming uh, to bring the full and final kingdom. And so there would be a wait for Jesus to come, a wait for his full and final kingdom. Uh, a while back, Harley and I were watching a show set in the 18th century where a man and woman were engaged, and then the man was called off to fight in uh, a war across the ocean, and he left, and then 
He never came back and um, or didn't come back, hadn't for a long time, and she didn't have word. And so the question, <clears throat> difficult question was, what of the engagement? How long, how long should I wait? How should I wait? And that comes to mind in, in thinking about the fact that we need to be clear. How, how are we to understand this waiting uh, for, for the groom of the church? How are we to wait for Christ's return? How are we to understand that? Um, Jesus teaches a number of places about that delay, about that wait for him, and makes some things clear. He makes clear that we won't have all the answers in this time of waiting for, his, for him to return. Uh, there will be many things we can't know, the timing of his coming again, uh, or exactly how his plan is unfolding. The Lord, why do things happen this way or, or that way? Um, another thing, though, that's clear from Jesus' teaching is that he tells his people enough. He tells his disciples, us, what we need to know, uh, that we can have a sure hope in our waiting, um, that he will return. And he, and he tells us something of how we're to live in that. I want us to think, as we think about this parable, how much we have uh, in common with the disciples. Um, in some ways, we're experiencing what they were only anticipating at, at that point. We are waiting for Christ to return. Uh, we're in that time now. We, we don't know everything. Um, we don't know the timing of that. We don't understand all of Jesus' purposes uh, and ways. Uh, we have many opportunities to think, Lord, why are you doing it this way? It would seem to us better to do it this way, uh, or if this would happen and not that would happen. Um, and so as with Jesus' disciples, we need to understand he has told us enough. And this parable is a call to you to live in faithfulness to your generous king until he returns. Uh, the, the full kingdom, when everything is made right and his enemies are conquered and um, there's final reward and a new heavens and new earth, will come uh, in his timing. Uh, so Jesus addresses this with this parable. This parable is actually one that's unique to Luke. It's not found in any of the other Gospels. Uh, but you may recognize it's very similar, at least in some ways, to the parable of the talents uh, in Matthew chapter uh, 25, I think. Um, there are some significant similarities, uh, a master going away and leaving servants. There are also some significant differences uh, that we'll touch on. Uh, the, you kids, if you have a children's bulletin this morning, yours is on the parable of talents from Matthew. Uh, the publisher didn't have one on this parable uh, for some reason. So um, it's a very similar story. Um, it, it begins, verse, verse 12, then, with this scenario, a nobleman goes to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself, and then return, um, it's a, some high-ranking person already who's going to become king. He's going to receive a kingdom, but he has to go to an even higher authority, the emperor, or something like that, to receive that appointment, to be made king. Uh, but then this other piece is verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. And so some of the people from his uh, future realm also make the trip to the emperor, whoever it is, to protest against his appointment as king. Uh, the people generally, it seems, don't like him. Um, they're actually immediate. This isn't just some scenario Jesus came up with. There are immediate examples from Jesus and his disciples' lifetime uh, where this exact thing happened. Uh, this was the, the kind of thing that would happen in, there in the ancient world. Uh, Herod the Great, for example, uh, who lived through Jesus' birth, but not much beyond, um, 
received his kingship from uh, Mark Antony uh, in Rome. Um, uh, at the death of Herod the Great, he divided up his kingdom among his sons, uh, and Archelaus, Herod uh, Archelaus was the, the one of the rest of the gospel stories. Uh, he was the one appointed by Herod the Great over Judea, um, Jerusalem, and, and so on. Uh, but only Caesar ultimately had, that, Herod the Great didn't have the authority to finalize that. Caesar had to. So Archelaus made the journey as well to Rome to be confirmed as king over Judea. Uh, but then the other piece of this uh, also was very much real in that, in that time, there was a delegation of 50 Jews who went from Judea to Rome after Archelaus to argue with Caesar, we don't want this man to rule over us. We hate him. He's a bad person. Um, so this, this very scenario is, is something in, in, very much out of real life. Um, interestingly, Archelaus was appointed ruler, but he was downgraded from king to tetrarch. So I, whether that had something to do with the Jews, the argument they made, I, I don't know uh, whether it did, but um, this is not to compare Jesus to Archelaus, who is, who is a wicked man, but uh, it illustrates Jesus receiving the kingdom from his father uh, and being gone for a time uh, and then returning to, to establish his full kingdom uh, in person again. So what does Jesus call his people to in his absence? How, how are we to live in light of his not being visibly here uh, and why? Uh, looking at number one uh, on your outline uh, in verse 13, uh, here's what the, the leader does. The master, before he leaves to receive a kingdom, he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. So ten minas. It's not a, uh, each, each, each slave, each servant gets uh, one mina, not a huge sum of money. Um, this, this is one, it, it would be a few months wages for a very poor laborer. Um, so it's, it's not, not intended to picture of a massive amount of money. This is one of the big differences between this and the parable of the talents. Uh, the, the talents involves millions and millions of dollars in, in, in what would be equivalent to us. The, the part of the point there is that it's a huge amount of money. Uh, not so here. Uh, another difference with the parable of talents is, you may remember in the parable of talents, the master gives the servants varying amounts, uh, right? And that, that sort of pictures the, the fact that Jesus gives different talents and opportunities and gifts and so on to, to various people. Uh, here, the gift is exactly the same uh, to everyone, uh, to each of his servants. Uh, pictures Jesus leaving his people with something that they're to use, something they're to live by, something that we all have in common, uh, though there's much we don't have all in common. Uh, different opportunities and, and gifts and talents and so on. Uh, but, but what is every believer given by Christ? What might that be that we all have in, in common, that we've all been given? Well, I think it, it can only be the gospel. It's the truth of the gospel. It's, it's the salvation that we have in Christ, the good news of Christ. He lived and died and rose again for sinners. The message that God, through Jesus, has offered to sinful, rebellious world reconciliation and peace that he now rules for us. And to see how Jesus is calling his people to live, note also to just two circumstances that are, that are part of this parable, that the servants are to use this gift on behalf of their master in, in two particular circumstances. So the one, of course, again, is that the master will be away. So that'll be one factor. You're to use this while I'm gone. The other significant one is in the midst of hostility. So that's 
that's the part of verse, the, the point of verse 14 in part, is to show that context. The citizens hated him. You get a sense that the master had a few servants who were with him, who were glad to serve him, and then everybody else in the realm hates him, doesn't, doesn't want to serve him, doesn't love him. Um, that's kind of like Archelaus' situation. Again, uh, most of the Jews, everybody in the realm that he was going to be over, were not happy about him ruling there. Though certainly he, he would have had some loyal followers. Uh, what is the master expecting of them in this parable uh, while he's gone? Well, in, in a word, I think it's, it's faithfulness. It's faithfulness. Um, sometimes in thinking about this parable, people come to a different emphasis or, or conclusion uh, and, and end up focusing more on, on their, the servants making profit. Um, but that's not what he instructs them to do. He doesn't tell them, you know, make a profit with this. Um, certainly that's part of the story, and, and they, they make varying profits with it. Uh, but in verse 13, verse 13, he tells them to do business. Do business. Use it. And one commentator, I think, helpfully puts it this way. He's, he's telling them to put up shop in his name, essentially. Open up shop in my name. Uh, here, here's a gift from me. Use it in my name while I'm gone. When he returns, he doesn't ask them, you know, how much profit did you make? Uh, the, the profit factors into the reward, but it's not commended specifically. What he says in verse 17 is, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful. The emphasis really is on their being faithful. Whether the profit was a lot or a little, it was a small amount of money in the first place. Um, and and in, in verse 19, I think it's intended to be implied, though it's shortened for the form of the story, that, that the, the commendation of the second servant is also the same. Um, it's, it's briefer there, but I think it's implied that he's commended for being faithful as well. Here's your reward. Um, Jesus is asking uh, his disciples, applying this parable, to openly, loyally identify with him. To serve him openly with the gift that he's given them uh, while they're gone. Uh, the servants here were essentially to set up shop in the name of the master. Even though he wasn't around to oversee them or defend them. Uh, even though he was hated. And likely they would be as well. And so it's a, it's a call to costly loyalty uh, in the first part. A, a call to costly loyalty. It would be dangerous, uncomfortable. I think you know, it would be fair to draw parallels. Like imagine setting up an openly Jewish shop in Nazi-occupied Europe. Or, or imagine setting up a bank right now in Ukraine in the name of, of Vladimir Putin. Right? It would be uncomfortable and dangerous. Um, the, the test of the parable is, will you be faithful in a hostile world until I return? Uh, do you trust me? Will you do business in my name, in a sense? And, and the master, is as, as if he's saying, it, it'll, be, it'll be easy for you to identify publicly with me when I return in power and judgment. Uh, but the true test of loyalty is, will you do it now? No matter the cost. Well, I'm not here. And so I challenge you this morning, is that how valuable the gift of the gospel is to you? If, if you've really received and understood the gospel, you know you can trust Jesus, that, that the God you've offended and hated has yet given you this life, given you life, eternal life, none of which you deserve. Um, 
Uh, Ken Bailey, who I've quoted before in the Gospels, who uh, spent a lot of time living and teaching in the Middle East, he tells the story of years ago teaching some courses through a summer in Latvia, uh, in the, the Lutheran Church of Latvia. And while he was there, he watched the interviewing of prospective students of theology, generally future pastors, much like our presbyteries do, uh, interviewing uh, prospective uh, pastors, uh, testing them. Um, and uh, they, they told him, he writes, that the most important question for these prospective students was, when were you baptized? And, and Bailey asked, you know, why, why is that important? Why is that so important? the timing of it, and they answered, he writes, if they were baptized during the period of Soviet rule, they risked their lives and compromised their futures by being baptized. But if they were baptized after liberation from the Soviets, we have many further questions to ask about why they want to become a pastor. The point was not there was anything wrong with being baptized after Soviet rule, but it told them so much about them already that they were willing to be baptized openly openly identify with Christ under Soviet rule because of the risk of that. Um, A God who has utterly debased himself to suffer and die for you, with you, because he loves you, is a God who can be trusted. Um, We're we're thankful for the freedoms we have in this nation, for relative relative political freedom, Uh, but we need to reflect on the question, too. what What is radical, thorough faithfulness to Jesus look like in your life? What should it look like? Uh, What should that experience be like? What should it cost? Probably it should be uncomfortable in many ways. If if we're really living in light of and really sharing the gospel, uh, really living in faithfulness to Jesus, it could risk ridicule by your friends. It could risk friendships altogether, perhaps. Uh, it could risk you know, a grade that you might make in school or at a secular university. Um, it could risk getting fired. It may risk not getting hired at all if you're honest and faithful to Christ. How do you faithfully do business with the gospel, for the gospel, at the office or as an engineer, as a homemaker, or at school? Wherever you're called to set up shop, to steward what, what Christ has given to you and who you are in him. Uh, In many settings, there's often an easier way, and there's a way faithful to Jesus. So Jesus calls you to costly faithfulness until he returns uh, in response to and with the gospel. Secondly, he calls you to faithfulness, letter B in your outline, in confidence of his generous reward when he returns. Look at Jesus' response to both these slaves. Uh, the, the first appeared, verse 16, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. Uh, he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be an authority over ten cities. And then the second, uh, five and, and five cities. And again, we're, we're to underst- uh, understand that both get, get the same commendation. You've been faithful. Uh, and there is some proportionality between the two men. You know, five cities, or five minas and five cities, ten minas and ten cities. Um, That's consistent with the teaching of Scripture, that there will be varying rewards at the the judgment when when Christ comes again. Uh, One equal salvation, one absolutely equal standing before God for all of his people. 
but varying rewards for faithfulness that's reflected elsewhere in the New Testament. But I want you to see particularly how massively out of proportion each reward is with, with the gift that was given and what the servant did with it. Um, they're given a small amount of money. They did a relatively small amount of business in his absence. They're merely stewarding what, what doesn't even belong to them in the first place. And they're rewarded with rule over ten cities and rule over five cities. The, the point here is that it's utterly disproportionate, incredibly generous. Imagine you're sitting in a restaurant and someone says, you know, would you watch my purse here while I go to the restroom? And they, they go and they come back and the purse is still safe, of course. And they, they reward you by, by giving you a $10 million estate. You know, that, that's the kind of ridiculous reward here in, in, in proportion to, to what was used and what was done. And so will your reward be at, at the judgment. You know, however this translates into what Jesus' actual reward to you will be, it's, it will be massively out of proportion uh, to, to what you've done, how you've served him, uh, how, how you've been faithful or what, what you've been able to accomplish in his name. Um, to receive authority and responsibility alongside Jesus as he teaches and to have joy and peace in his kingdom forever uh, is infinitely beyond uh, a fair payment uh, to, to you and me who deserve nothing from him um, uh, in the end. Faithfulness to Jesus is, uh, again, a response to the gospel, but it's also anticipating his future reward. Uh, it's done in anticipation of his infinitely gracious and generous reward, knowing that this is the kind of God, the kind of king and savior that he is uh, to you. What, what does that look like in our waiting? What does that faithfulness, anticipating his reward, look like? It looks like repentance and prayer, and dependence on the Holy Spirit in this life. It's uh, extending the love of Christ for you to others and compassion and mercy as one who's, who's such an incredible heir. Uh, it looks like sharing the gospel, believing, believing the power of the gospel and sharing it. It looks like supporting the work of the gospel in local churches and uh, missions work. It looks like just living out your ordinary everyday callings uh, consciously as servants of Christ, uh, adorning the gospel with with a life of obedience as as a witness to the world, witness to people around you, um, motivated by the gospel and everything. Faithfulness is not standing before Christ at the judgment and, and boasting of what we've done, sort of laying out our achievements and seeing if he's impressed. Um, Pointing to how gifted we were, how successful we were. It, it will be delighting to serve Jesus in whatever he calls you to. Um, and looking back on the ways he has worked faithfully through you. Uh, we can see something that, of that in this story. In the way that both servants rightly don't claim uh, any accomplishment or, or right themselves. Look at verse 16. The first servant, Master, your mina. He acknowledges right up front, this, this was your gift. It's not me. And then, and then even beyond that, he says, your mina has made ten minas. As if it, it did this on its own. Look, look what it did while you were gone. Uh, as if by its own power. That ought to teach us again just how little uh, we have uh, claim to what, what Christ does through us. Um, an example that comes to mind is a William, William Carey 
a, a famous missionary from long ago to India um, who gave his life for the gospel and sacrificed enormously. He uh, wrote in a, le- in a letter to his son on one of his birthdays, one of William Carey's birthdays, writing to his son. He simply said, I am this day 58, but how little I have done for God. Uh, it seems almost laughable if you know anything of William Carey's life and sacrifice, but that's the sort of faithful, humble acknowledgement uh, that we see reflected in these servants, uh, giving back to, to Christ, um, acknowledging that God uses his people. Uh, there's one more slave or servant that's presented here and teaches us something about unfaithfulness. Uh, so looking at number two, on your outline, verse 20, another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. So this servant did not do business while the master was gone. He did not openly identify with the king. He didn't set up shop in the king's name, if you will, uh, and serve him. He effectively hid the fact that he had any association with the king while the king was away. And so he has nothing to show for the gift he was given. And I want to suggest there there are two reasons for that. Two reasons that this is his conclusion. The first, letter A on your outline there, is he didn't really know the king. Uh, Listen to his reasoning for doing nothing with the gift he was given. Verse 21, For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. In other words, this servant is saying, It was your fault, you mean king. Right? You're mean, you're exacting, you're unfair, you take what's not yours, and so I was afraid of messing up, or I was afraid you'd just come back and you know, take it back from me anyway. And look at the master of the king's response, verse 22. He said to him, by your own words, I will judge you. In other words, he's not accepting the servant's evaluation of him, <laughs> that he's mean and thieving and, and, and all of that. But he says, well, I'll, let, let's just play along and go with your assessment. And he's going to judge him by, the re, by, by his own assessment. Uh, and he goes on to say, uh, if, if, essentially, if you knew, if you thought that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down, reaping what I did not sow, why did you not put my money in the bank? And, and it would have at least made interest. Uh, your, your actions aren't even consistent with your own evaluation. The, the problem is with you. You're condemned by your own excuse. And he he calls him a worthless slave. The point, I think, is he doesn't know the king as a good and generous master. That's that's how he's fully revealed to us uh, when he comes back with the other servants. One who, out of all proportion, loves to generously reward those who, who simply depend on him and trust him and serve him in simple, small ways. That's the kind of king he is. But this servant is interacting with a false view of the king. It reminds us it's so crucial that you and I rightly know Jesus. There are so many false Christs, false versions of Jesus. Uh, If you're serving the wrong Jesus, you will be fruitless and unfaithful um, and judged, this parable teaches. The decisions of many people regarding Jesus are based on on a distorted view of him. Uh, One person I know well rejects God of the Bible because this person believes that God is unjust, unfair, and harsh. And says, you know, if, if that person is God, 
you know, he punishes what he gets to decide is wrong and, and allows suffering and so on. If that is God, I don't, I don't want to serve him. I want nothing to do with him. Other people, and maybe sort of another end of the spectrum, want to be associated with Jesus, but it's, it's one they've created in their own minds uh, to their liking. He's a soft, accommodating, weak, and, and to them, self-serving form of Jesus. Uh, a while back, I've, I've shared a couple of times I, in, in Florida, I went uh, to abortion clinic regularly uh, with this guy, John, who was there every day um, offering you know, preaching and sharing the gospel and offering help to, to women who were coming there for abortions. And one day, just as a lady was enter- going in the door, she turned around, looked at John and said, don't worry about me, I'm a Christian. God will forgive me. I remember John saying immediately and kindly, but pointedly, he said, that lady, that fuzzy Jesus in your head is not the right one. It's not the real Jesus. The second reason I think this servant was unfaithful is he represents someone who did not really have the gospel. Uh, look at verse 24. Uh, the king says to the bystanders, take the mina away from him, give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, master, he has ten minas already. And then the master again says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. This man represents someone who heard the gospel, who received that gift, in a sense, um, who was presented with God's gracious plan to save sinners and then did nothing with it. Nothing really reflected in their life uh, that they had received it, understood it. They never really received it. They never submitted to their Savior as king. The crowd response, again, is that's not, that's not fair. You know, this guy already has ten. Jesus' response is essentially the one who has what Christ offers, who really receives the gospel and believes it and lives, lives it out every day, all day. They, they've given themselves to this king. More blessings will be heaped on them by this generous king. That will be their experience. But there are those who thought they had something, who never really knew the king that they thought they knew, never really loved him, never really believed the gospel. And, and they will lose everything in the end. They will face just punishment of the king who, who condescends to offer grace, but who also will judge in the end. There's some debate between commentators over the fate of this last servant. Does he, you know, is he ultimately a servant of the king? Does he get into the kingdom uh, even if he doesn't have any particular reward um, or, or not? Is he to be counted you know, with verse 27? And there, is, there maybe seems to be some distinction between him and the enemies at the end, right? He, what, he started out as, as a servant. The, the master gave him a gift that pictures the gospel. And he, didn't, he didn't, wasn't one who hated the king and, you know, protested uh, against him. Uh, but he also refused to openly identify with him. And his gift was taken away in the end. And I think it's intended that we understand he meets the ultimate, the, ultimately the same fate as the enemies of the king. He loses everything. And, and, and so these, these two groups uh, that end up negatively in this parable, this servant who did nothing with the gift, and then the enemies, the open enemies of the king, they simply represent two, 
two different kinds of rejection of a God who, who graciously condescends to rebellious, helpless creatures who offers peace and grace and mercy and new life, offers to rule over them and defend them and provide for them extravagantly. This, this third servant clearly represents someone who didn't really receive the gospel and, and now the, the king. And, and so I want to ask, simply in closing, uh, what will you hear from Jesus when he comes again? We need to be clear that Jesus calls his people to faithfulness and loyalty and, and to live out the gospel. We need to grow in and desire that. We also need to be clear that, that your acceptance as a good and faithful servant now and at the end is not because you've measured up to some level of productivity. Right? That, again, that's not the point of the parable, that you have to make a certain number of minas with, with the gift that you're given. Um, you can know now that you will hear then, well done, good slave, you have been faithful. Uh, because if you repent of your sins and believe the gospel, trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then your acceptance with God is in Jesus it's in his perfect obedience for you. It's in his atoning death for you. Uh, to have the gospel is to have Jesus, is to have acceptance and, and as, as pleasing servants of God, no matter what you've done and how imperfectly you've served. Our, our assurance, uh, to put it another way, is very different from that of Muslims, for example. Uh, who, who think assurance of salvation is, is highly arrogant. You live your life hoping to tip the scales you know, in, in the favor of having done more good than more bad, and you present this before God, sort of lay out your resume before God at the judgment, and, and you hope that he accepts you. It was a terrifying, very uncertain version of, of salvation that is not the biblical picture. So this, the third servant's rejection as a worthless slave is, is, again, not because he pictures someone who didn't measure up or didn't produce enough in response to the gospel or didn't, didn't uh, earn the favor of the king, of Jesus. It, it's, he represents someone who never had Jesus or never had the gospel at all. And so he represents yet another character, yet another character in Jesus' teaching who thinks he is in the kingdom, who thinks he is in the favor of God, thinks he's in some relationship to Jesus, but he's self-deceived. Here's, here's another warning that you not be one who simply thinks you have salvation. Uh, people who want to create a, a, a sort of soft, all-accepting, non-judgmental Jesus who doesn't demand repentance or anything uh, have to ignore so much of Jesus' teaching, so many warnings over and over again in the Gospels. Luke chapter 8. Take care then how you hear, Jesus says. For to the one who has, who, that is who really has, who's really received what Jesus is giving, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even when he thinks he has, will be taken from him. The same conclusion as this parable. Luke chapter 6. The parable of the two builders. Very well-known parable. It, it begins with Jesus saying, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? But do not do what I say. It's this, th this third category of servants. Again, he's speaking to those who, who call Jesus Lord, identify with him publicly, 
that they don't really belong to him or follow, follow him. And, and, and then, of course, the parable is one servant builds a house on a rock, represents building their life on Christ, and, and the other gets washed away in the end, exposed. Luke chapter 13, Jesus speaks of those who thought themselves in the kingdom, but then when Jesus returns and finds uh, servants, um, he finds servants outside the door, and they, they plead with him. You know, they say, we... We knew you, we, we served in your name, and so on. And, and Jesus says, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me. Go away. Luke 14, Jesus says, all those who come to me, he speaks of all those who come to me, there's a lot of you following me, think you have a relationship with me, but he says uh, over and over again, if, if this is true, you cannot be my disciple. If X is true, you cannot be my disciple. If Y is true, you cannot be my disciple. You are not. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That is, if, if you haven't died to self and, and submitted completely to the gospel, you only think you are a follower of mine. Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. Uh, there, some, of course, are, are unprepared in that last scene, picturing the last judgment. They think they're part of the party, and then the door gets slammed in their face. And the master again says, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. Over and over again. Jesus gives, it's one of the, it's maybe the most repeated warning Jesus gives in the Gospels. Be sure you're not one of those who think that you are a Christian. You think you are a follower of mine, but you're not. You never were. You never knew me. It's not enough to know something about Jesus. It's not even enough to know the Gospel, to know the way of salvation, to have the right answers. Have you really received it? Have you, have you staked your life on the truth of God's word? Have you staked your life on, on who Jesus is as Savior and Lord? Have you submitted to the indictment of, of God's law against you and then accepted Jesus as your Savior to reconcile you by, by his work alone, by nothing that you can do? If you have, it's your joy to live in faithfulness until your generous king returns and you can anticipate hearing well done good and faithful servant let's pray together father we thank you again this morning for uh, your word Uh, and we thank you for the incredible teaching of jesus especially in the parables and how they make us think how they make us see our own see ourselves in the story and think of our own lives and we pray this morning that you would give us reflection on our own lives uh, whether we are truly following you and truly love you whether we've given our lives to you as as our savior and lord uh, not in a way that earns your favor uh, but in response to your your free grace that you've given um, pray that you would give us that reflection now and as we celebrate Uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.